Paranoia Agent. I'm Alex. Hi, this is Blixa. And hey, it's Ben. And this week we're coming to you with episode six and seven, I think. Mm-hmm. And we have a new fabulous guest who is new to the show, but no stranger to Paranoia Agent. Please say hello to Aubrey. Hello. Aubrey, we're happy to have you on. You're a first time guest, so I have to ask you, what's your experience with anime? Do you have any formative series that were really important to you? So I was a child in the 80s. So uh, most of the anime we got was at hobby shops and comic book shops in a back room. Not necessarily because it was adult. That's just where it was. (laughs) It was treated like porn because a little bit of it was. Mm -hmm. A lot of the staples, uh, Ninja Scroll, Akira. Mm. I can't remember anything else right now. (laughs) Like Uh, the big ones were like Ghost Ghost in a Shell. Yeah, yeah, well, we only had the one Ghost in a Shell at the time. (laughs) When the series came out, I was a big fan of the series. It was just so great to get that again um, after so long of a time. But uh, yeah, my friends were really into to like the Rotsuki Doji and the that kind of stuff that I didn't really care for. Tentacle porn, right? <laughs> it's tentacle porn. Yes, yes, very much <laughs> like classic tentacle porn. That and, like mm. Love Blue Girl and yeah, the eighties were a dark time for children. <laughs> But you do care very much about this series, from what I've heard. Uh, I have lost count of how many times I've seen it. I want to say this is like my eighth go through. When it was originally airing on Adult Swim, and then like later, I think they moved it to Toonami. It was one of the shows where I could come home after work and it would just be on. So night after Mm -hmm. night after night, I could just watch this same show. And I never got tired of it. Just the the interconnectedness, the like the story it's trying to tell, just all of it was fascinating for me. When like the other stuff on television at time was Aqua Teen Hunger Force, which <laughs> doesn't hit the same notes. Yeah, so this is not like Aqua Teen Hunger Force. <laughs> no, so, no, no worries if this was too personal. But what what were you working where you're coming home at like midnight or one a.m. Um, and catching Paranoia Agent gas station. I worked at a lot of gas stations by myself. Fine American tradition. Yeah. So I actually have a funny anecdote, like since we invoked La Blue Girl. Uh, when I first uh, was exposed to Satoshi Kon, I got really excited. And at the time, I couldn't find any uh, physical media. Uh, so I reached out to Discotech Media and I mixed up the title of Perfect Blue <laughs> with La Blue Girl. What, what, what's La Blue Girl? It's tentacle porn. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and I was making this case on why it was like an exceptionally like fine art <laughs> part of anime history. It is pretty high budget tentacle porn. Okay. Uh, everything okay with us? Is there any anime news or, or podcasting murder news? Hmm. I, did, I did just get back from watching um, Infinity Pool. It's like this mm. new horror movie. It's um, I didn't realize this, but Cronenberg's son also is now a horror director. So it's Brandon Cronenberg. And it is a it's definitely like a mind fuck of a movie. Okay. Infinity pool. Yeah. Said? So if you want a horror horror mind fuck, it's a good movie for that. Okay, cool. Me, Mia okay. Goth, who's great. 
I do love some Cronenberg. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just watched The Brood for the first time and earlier this year, Scanners. I still really need to see, I think it's Videodrome. Yes. Oh, uh, wow. That's a wild movie. Yeah, I hear that's a like pinnacle work of his because it has a phrase about like the new flesh, which is very <laughs> prescient and maybe uh, mm-hmm. terrifying for the future. God, that movie got sampled so much in early industrial music. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still need to watch it too. It's like the name of the one like indie video store um, still around in Atlanta is Videodrome. So <gasps> no way. Yeah. That's awesome. That is awesome. Uh, that's like early James Woods and Kim Cattrall. Oh wow, Kim Cattrall is awesome. And it's before we knew James Woods sucks so bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there's nothing else, then uh, I will. Uh, do this last time on, and then we'll watch the first episode, discuss, watch the second episode, discuss. Last time on Who Framed Shonen Bat, we met Masami Hirukawa, a perverted police officer with a penchant for prostitutes and paternal issues. Though his family was nowhere to be found, Masami continued to use his wife and daughter as justification for mob extortion, police corruption, and then straight-up robbery. The house he had been building slowly completed just as the stability of his profession slowly unraveled. Then, answering Masami's wish as he had before, Lil Slugger appeared to put an end to Masami's manic episode. But the bat wasn't enough to knock out our crooked cop. With a random task shoe throw, Masami apprehended our athletic antagonist and turned him over to our detectives for questioning. In the interrogation room, Ikari and Maniwa took a magical journey into the imagination of Makoto Kazuka, our supposed shonen bat. Kazuka confessed in a confounding manner to the assault of Ushi and Masami while under the influence of a popular fantasy RPG. But the other victims were nowhere to be found in his narrative. Will Ikari find a thread to tie all the victims together? How far will Maniwa empathize and emulate with our suspect? Will we ever meet Masami's meaning for living? Let's find out. All right, sounds good. All right, three, two, one, play. We get lots of wishes in, mm-hmm. in this show. Yeah, this music's real good at being unsettling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I thought the detective was just BSing. Well, we talked about the supposed Shonen Bat and how Tsukiko is not in his story. Like most of the victims really weren't. He only identifies uh, Ushi and that guy, Masami, the cop. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. I'm going to be freaked out if this ends up being like uh, hereditary, that horror movie. What? That there's a cult? No, no, no. Like there's an actual demon. I mean, maybe, but we have talked extensively with multiple guests about uh, tulpas. Mm-hmm. And I don't exactly know what the difference between a demon and a tulpa is, but maybe that's something we could get into. Okay. So we did speculate if the cop actually did have a family or not. He does. He does. Yeah. So I was wrong. I thought maybe they were gone or he never had one in the first place, but he has lost his daughter. So, you know, not quite half right, but there was something to what I, I was uh, uh, anticipating. And and I was confused by that, um, the like mudslide or earthquake at the end. Mm-hmm. So that was in the past and something also happened to their house? No, I think that's in the present. Yeah. And I think what happened is the house that she grew up in another family was occupying it. So there are two houses. There's a new house he was trying to build hmm. for her to come back to. 
because she couldn't come back to that old house because that's the site of all of her trauma. So like, Mm. obviously, that's not going to be a good start for her. This episode is a little it's kind of, you know, it switches back between multiple character perspectives and multiple time frames, which we hadn't really had that yet. But it also had some kind of red herring path leading for us because the old woman uh, she says something like, I'd really like to see my granddaughter again. And then we cut to a shot of Tycho yeah. walking through the city. And so it's kind of like maybe this old woman is her grandmother. And even she almost we could mistake like recognition when she finds her at the when she's like dangling off the waterfall. But as it turns out at the end, they have no relation. And I think that's part of this is. Satoshi Kon giving us little hints which our brains make into a narrative, whether they're right or wrong. For a few minutes in this episode, the old woman was Tycho's grandmother. And then when we got confirmation that she wasn't, the story shifted again, mm-hmm. which is kind of on theme for what we're getting in uh, uh, Sukiko in this episode, because it seems like she's caught in a lie because uh, Lil Slugger, our, our uh, suspect, does not identify her, does not say anything about that first attack. And the cops seem to be like, "Mm, we have now an eyewitness testimonial, this old woman. It looks like there was no one at the scene. You did this to yourself. And yet we get this like miracle moment where Sukiko gets smashed out of her chair. Seems like she couldn't have done that herself. And simultaneously, Taiko gets hit on the bridge. So like, we seem to know where the story is going and then boom, it's not. We don't know where it's going. It's a new direction. So maybe he's just trying to keep us on our feet until the very end. But there's a lot of, I don't know, like the story and changes in our minds as it unfolds on the screen. It's really fascinating work. So are, are we into analysis now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. I, uh, Welcome to the darkest episode. Yeah. So I have, I have a question. Um, okay. During the interrogation, and when Tayako was on the bridge, like, yeah, mm-hmm. it looked like they got struck by something invisible. Mm-hmm. Or from the detective's perspective, maybe she was just fainting. But it seemed more violent than that, right? No, yeah. It seems like it shot out of her chair. Uh, so it's kind of like Golden Bat still did its usual routine, but not like an incarnate uh, demonstration of what they do, of what Golden Bat does. Like, because the, the, the same things still happened. We had somebody in distress that wanted something else. And then this divine strike happens and gets them out of the situation. Mm-hmm. And again, it's wish fulfillment, right? Taiko says to her father, Masami, on the phone, I'll get rid of everything like you love, all of your happiness. And she does. She was going to kill herself, but instead she doesn't remember him. Sorry, Ben, I think I got you off. Oh, no, I was going to say, too, then we also, after it happens, we get this um, shot of Marumi and the detective kind of looking suspiciously at Marumi, right? <laughs> and earlier in the interrogation, she was like, well, I wasn't alone. Marumi was there. And he was like, what? Marumi was with me. What does that mean? So, so I think there is still, you know, the possibility that maybe Marumi was somehow involved in whatever that was, that like strike that she felt and the... Mm-hmm the initial attack or something like that. And, you know, so, I, you know, what does that mean? You know, is it that she sort of has some sort of dissociative identity thing going on where there's this Murumi character that can interfere with her life or something? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I only really know what Blix has taught me about tulpas, but like, I'm really into this tulpa idea because, you know, she created Maromi and now Maromi walks around and talks to her and is even looking at people when Tsukiko's not paying attention to Maromi, which is pretty interesting. But she also created, well, we don't know for sure, but it seems to me that she created Little Slugger. She created this other tulpa. Like whether it was drawing the picture or telling the story, like it seems like it's all her. Not entirely. Okay. Mm. Um, During the episode with uh, Yuichi, Mm -hmm. there were many scenes where it would focus on like the uh, school president posters and you would just hear Mm. the kids talking Mm -hmm. and you would hear them say, I heard that he smiles after he attacks. I heard this. I heard that. And the later attacks incorporate those. Okay, so mm. even if she did create it, it's out of her hands now. It's a it's a public tulpa. Everyone is adding to the story. Which the 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 episode previous to this one with the the holy warrior, there's a whole other level of delusion and buying in to somebody else's story going on in that one. That's um, mm-hmm. pretty fascinating for uh, you know being somebody who they they think is little slugger and. Like he's able to to take the detectives into this whole other world, and you're never sure if is that actually happening, or are they like just sitting in the interrogation room and they're like thinking through it. But it's weird that it would show it in that way. Oh, totally. That's there's there's a, there's a lot of um, what's real and what's not. What is like objectively happening in the world, and what is someone's perception? Yeah, and and so now, according to that old lady, we know that she did some sort of self-inflicted attack, right? She picked up that pipe, but they just say hit her leg, right? It's not like knocked yourself out, right? So is there still, I think there still leaves open the space for something could have happened to her after she hit herself on the leg, right? Yes. Hmm. And we had speculated previously that, you know, it's not exactly hidden, but at the site of each attack, there's something else that could have potentially mimicked a bat. Mm. Like when Ushi gets hit, he has the palm tree. When Kawazu, the um, journalist, gets hit, Sukiko has her cane. Mm. And now we also have this fucking pipe or whatever it is that Sukiko finds in the parking lot. Mm. Yeah, did we did we have something like that for Maria? Oh, I don't know. She's just on the street. Yeah, yeah I don't remember anything specific with her. But she's the hers is like very interesting because before she is attacked, she is assaulting herself. Right. Or mm-hmm. or one personality is assaulting the other. So like even more than the other, everyone's been in distress when they are attacked by a little slugger. But Maria Harumi specifically was already attacking themselves or herself before the head hit happens, I guess. Fuck, I can't mm. keep it straight. How did she get struck? I mean, she gets hit in the head. Yeah. It, it shows us little snapshots of Little Slugger. But again, like we don't know. Like Aubrey was saying, we see our, our suspect, Kazuko or something. We see him be a holy warrior. We see him and the detectives go through his whole story. But does that mean that it actually happened in physical or objective reality or does is it just somebody's story and so is any of it really happening and there's an obvious answer that and no it's not because it's just a story but within the you know the the reality of the story it is very hard to parse what's 
happening physically and what is just in people's heads. Hmm. And that is one one of the reasons why I've been able to watch this like eight times <laughs> and I'm still picking up on things that I never noticed before. One of them I'll probably want to get to after the next episode because I think it's actually like revealed at that point. But <clears throat> a clue from you know several episodes earlier, like um, Tycho's father in this episode is the John from the Maria episode who cries when she calls him daddy. Mm-hmm. Mm. So much is planted ahead of time that like it really does benefit watching multiple times oh yeah totally i'm sure if we go back and watch that episode where we first meet him like we will be more disgusted because you know the the daddy fetish will not be something innocuous we'll be like that's something grounded in things he's done already which is awful Uh, there was a thing about you know wanting to get this new house for the daughter. So I'm still sort of confused mm-hmm. by some of the timeline stuff. And so then they do get the new house and that's the one that the spy cam is in? No, I think the spy cam was in the old house. Gotcha. That a new family is inhabiting. So they must have sold that at some point. And then the new house he had built, but at the end of the episode, it looks like it. there's a landslide happening and they might lose that one too. So the idea of building this new house... That came from back when the family was together and things were good. And then the family has fallen apart, but he's like kept up with this dream of like still building this house for his family, even though his his daughter ran off. This this episode, it has more moving parts than the previous episodes with the time jumps and the different points of view. And honestly, it wasn't until like this watch that i realized that the whole episode about her father you really don't see the wife or daughter and Hmm. because they play that so close to the chest it is hard to tell in this episode where certain things are taking place but it was it was my understanding that he used the money he was embezzling to buy the house and install the cameras in the new house Hmm. and they had recently moved in and she had had taken off like immediately before um, the events of the episode Oh, okay. Uh, that might be worth watching to see if she's wearing the same clothes when she watches on the computer to when she's actually running around in the streets in the rain. Mm-hmm. But it, it appears to me like the dad built the house for that reason. And as soon as she found out, she left. And that's where we're at now. And I wonder, does the mom know? Because it seemed like she was still with him at the end of the episode. Yeah. And like, I can't imagine staying with a spouse after that revelation. But like, I don't know, she also seemed kind of uh, like she didn't have a lot of agency. She was very quiet, very to the side. And she was a non-entity. Yeah, exactly. Even in the episode she was in. So, yeah. Mm. So I think I've got the plot straight. Okay. What is Satoshi Kone on about? Like, is this about like the power of story and like what is real or not real? Uh, is subject to the stories we tell? I mean, I think so. I think the point may be that reality is a story. Like there is a physical reality that we can kind of observe and share our observations of and come to a consensus on, you know, scientifically as it were. But ultimately, your reality is your perception, is the story you are telling yourself. So even though these things might not be real per se or physical, that doesn't make them have 
any less impact on our lives. And it's not just personal narrative. It's also societal narrative. You know, like there are things that have no grounding in physical reality, but we abide by them as if they did. You know, there's religion, there's, you know, laws and things. A law is not a physical law of the universe. It's a story. It's it's a, something we, you know, it's the people in power decided, but theoretically a society uh, agrees on a law and we all abide by it as if it were a physical reality. But like, that's not true. They're not really there. Hmm. Uh, it's us that makes them true. Okay. So this reminds me of a modality in therapy, rapid application brief therapy, where uh, so like say if someone has a early childhood trauma and there's a lot of ways that that kind of early narrative can get twisted and, you know, the way children perceive things can be off. And the whole idea is like, it doesn't really matter if this happened precisely like this because it still has these traumatic effects and it still has to be resolved. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about that is like, oftentimes it's not exactly how things played out, like uh, in the recollection in the real world, but the story is what has to get, is what's used to bring emotional resolution. That's fascinating. Because it is. Yeah. I mean, that's like the situation where a person's subjective reality, you know, is more important than what really happened, right? Like exactly. for their therapy, for them moving on, like mm -hmm. makes sense. So maybe this story is narrative therapy. You know, we're confronting a bunch of trauma and then like working it out through story. And, and, and in a way, it does kind of need to be worked out like therapy because um, each of the victims so far is refusing to take accountability for some sort of responsibility in their life. Yeah. And getting attacked is a relief so that they don't have to face what is wrong with them. Yeah, that's brilliant. When did this come out again? 2004. That's, this is an interesting story for 2004. Oh, <laughs> or just yeah, in general, yeah. I guess. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does seem very, you know, current, right? Like mm -hmm. to, it, it, I'm again and again, I'm really happy that we're, you know, we treated Seer Experiments Lane and this as kind of sister pieces because they cover some of the same themes and they both feel very now, you know, with that whole present day, present time thing. <laughs> it, it felt very strange watching it this time. It's been a few years but mm. realizing how old it is and watching it and thinking, wow, this is this is timeless. Nothing in mm. this rings untrue to today. Yeah. The phones are a little older. You know, we don't have answering machines anymore. But for the most part, yeah, it's it's still really watchable. It's still really well done. Yeah, and still covering a lot of sort of taboo issues that I don't think we've made much progress on <laughs> figuring out oh, since yeah. this has come out. So yeah. Oh, God, speaking of taboo issues, like you said, this aired on Toonami? Um, yeah. Like um, Adult Swim originally, I believe, and then it got moved. Okay. Yeah, because Toonami, there was a weird section of, of Cartoon Network time where there was anime, adult anime airing on, to, or on Adult Swim, and then Toonami took over part of the Adult Swim block. And that adult anime became part of Toonami. I don't know exactly how it happened, but like you could watch, uh, uh, what's it called late at night? Um, Cowboy Bebop late at night. But they wouldn't show that during the day on Toonami. I'm pretty sure mm. Cartoon Network and Adult Swim are different companies that just shared a channel. That's wild. But 
I'm not sure. I always assumed they were like the same company and it was just like a block yeah. within Cartoon Network. But I think they're actually separate entities that just split up that channel because they had very different audiences. Well, we should have our guest Robert back on. Could tell oh, us. yeah. Robert yeah. worked for Adult Swim. Did finally watch uh, House, the Japanese like psychedelic horror movie. Yeah. Totally worth checking out. <laughs> it's on the Criterion Collection. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I saw that when I was recovering from surgery. I don't, I don't. I mean, I was pretty doped up when I watched it. But it was <laughs> wild. It kind of reminded me of Evil Dead in some ways. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's sort of similar horror comedy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All, All right. Good. I'm definitely. glad I retained something. <laughs> yeah. I do remember. There was a horror movie in the beginning of the movie that I own, which was interesting because it's an American book. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so what were you going to say, Ben? I was going to say we're right about eight if we want to move over to the, the next episode. Oh, yeah. Moving. That's a good idea. Yeah. I had one last thing uh, just that I wanted to note, and that's Satoshi Kon often in his work, uh, and I guess Japanese media as a as a whole uses this, but we got the, um, the kamikaze in this. We got the divine wind. Mm. And this time it wasn't saving someone per se. It actually blew away the grandmother's house, the the old woman, but her house being blown away and then her being sucked into this river where she gets sucked into the water and we thought she died. That's actually the path that took her to the hospital, which allowed her to reconnect with. I, I couldn't remember if it was her daughter or her granddaughter that comes to see her. Granddaughter. But interesting to me that that the divine wind, you know, it shows up in this just like it did in like Tokyo Godfathers, but it it's not immediately apparent that it is a good thing or mm. a beneficial thing. And we, we were talking about the, you know, people making these wishes and the wishes getting fulfilled. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, the the cop's daughter, she wishes that the house would get destroyed. And then we see the grandmother's you know, shelter getting destroyed right after that. Right. Um, but by the end of the episode, the dad's house does get destroyed, right? Yeah, the landslide. All right. So again, what is Satoshi Kone on about? Like, he doesn't just throw stuff in for no reason. Like, what's with these, the parallels of the two shelters being destroyed? And for that matter, why is this called fear of a direct hit? Well, it was a hurricane, wasn't it? Yeah. But we also have like these two characters that get hit by something invisible, but why not just call it direct hit? Well, I mean, Sukiko looks pretty afraid before she gets hit in the chair inexplicably. I mean, maybe it's just because, you know, it's a very human thing to be afraid of the direct hit. You know, we flinch even when we're like, go ahead, hit me. Even when the person goes to hit you, it's you probably still flinch because it's just a human reaction. We shy away from pain and heartache and trauma. And sometimes we need an indirect path, perhaps a narrative in order to actually get to what the state we need to be in. Okay. So what about the grandmother's shelter being destroyed, blown away? Like, yeah, the hurricane, the tsunami was causing that, but narratively, why did that happen? What's it saying? Oh, I just think that it looks negative initially, but it's what reunites her with her family. Oh, okay. I missed that part. I'm sorry. No. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I could. I wish I could see my granddaughter again. Now I'm in the river. <laughs> now I get to see my granddaughter. Oh my god! So maybe it's just a you know you don't always know where life is going. And also, this is a really hard series to watch. It's not easy. There's a bunch of trauma happening, but we do get these moments of respite. We get these happy. She seems to have a happy ending, at least for the episode. Just go with the flow. 
Uh, this show's fucking crazy. So good. Uh, oh, yeah. we. I didn't really understand the mirroring of Tycho and the old woman, but like they're both women who are estranged from their family for different reasons. They're at opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Like one is a very old woman who's kind of ending her life, not immediately, but you know, she's towards the end. And then we have a young woman who's really just starting her life. She's just starting to become an adult. I was wondering too, there's kind of one shot of um, Tycho like under, you know, it's raining. She's under some shelter and it sort of looks like she's like setting up a place to sleep for the night or something like that. So I wondered too, if this is supposed to be a little bit of a like explanation of like the sort of situation where someone can end up homeless because, you know, their family issues, whatever, like force them out of the family. They, they're not safe at home. So they have to go out and, and do something else. Yeah. Well, the old lady said it started when the family got split up. Yeah. She left her family. So that's, yeah, it could be a possible future for her. Okay, cool. Uh, We don't have any other big thoughts for this episode. Let's do the next one, episode seven, and hopefully that will answer some some questions. All right. Is everyone there? Mm -hmm. All right. Three, two, one, play. Like that being John Malkovich scene? Yes. Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. Malkovich, Malkovich. So I thought he was a mathematician, but I guess he's a mathematician. <gasps> Sorry. Somebody's always interrupting him right before he. Yeah. <laughs> so some questions answered, but way more asked. God damn it. Mm-hmm. We, we have reached like the turnaround point for the series. Yeah, this is the halfway, right? Yeah. Um, things start to make sense, but then don't. Right. Which is different than knowing going into it. Like the first couple don't make sense, but I see a pattern developing. I can get behind this. Then answers, then confusion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and interesting that this is, there's a lot of, Satoshi Khan uses a lot of mirror imagery, but in this episode, it's like every scene has a mirror. There's two yokes. There's the magician, you know, Pearl turns himself into two people. We get the apparently dual life of Maniwa the detective like is this a new thing that he's transmitting like over the radio or is this something he's been doing through the whole case maybe through his whole career so he's maybe he's living two lives but anyways yeah that like this is the mirror point of the series the seventh episode there's six after this but also <laughs> we're getting all of these mirrors in the story it's great which also kind of answered our questions about Sagi and Taeko and why it looked like they were struck and no one was there. Yeah, and simultaneously. Yeah. Wait, sorry, what do you mean it answered those questions? Well, Maniwa puts it together that both of those attacks happened at the same time. Um, mm. So obviously, Bill Slugger, Shonen Bat, was in two places. Um, I kind of read that to be he was stretched too thin. He had enough to be in two places and attack two people, but not physically fully be there. So mm. you were just kind of left with the the effect, but not the whole thing. And, and so I guess the, you know, opening up the egg, that's supposed to be sort of seeding that idea in him of like, oh, maybe there were two of them or he was in two places at the same time or something like that. Yeah. So so now it seems like we have the the kid was a copycat, but then mm-hmm. there is this physical and supernatural shonen bat that... 
uh, you know, maybe was made up, but now is a, you know, physical thing. Well, it's sort of physical. It can physically strike people, but it can also go through walls. Yeah, kind of like a ghost. And yeah, and we had the magician sort of foreshadowing that with his magic trick. Mm-hmm. You know, the stuff with the magician is very confusing now. <laughs> like oh. what that was all about. Okay, so the magician turns into two people. Mm-hmm. And the previous episode, we had two people struck at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then everyone turns into the magician. Uh, So that makes me feel like there's probably something more to this like Tulpa idea. Like, well, this is actually an extension of that idea, but like when enough people start believing in something like within much intention, like it starts to manifest. I don't remember what branch of magic this is called. Panpsychism, I guess. Okay. No one's ever heard of this? We've talked a little bit about it. I'm I'm familiar with like another, like there's a kind of neurophilosophy term, panpsychism, that's maybe a little different. Um, Yeah, mine's better. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Can you give us the short version of panpsychism that you know, Ben? Uh, Well, so so that's sort of more this explanation for like, how does consciousness emerge? And Mm. so its answer is, well, everything is conscious. You just you can't access it or everything is kind of conscious in this way that like water might be conscious or like a rock is conscious, Mm -hmm. but you know, because they don't have memory because they don't have, they can't communicate. We can't access the fact that they're conscious. Mm. And so it's sort of uh, a workaround for trying to explain how consciousness emerges. Cause then you're like, well, everything is conscious. So it doesn't have to. Well, the idea that consciousness (laughs) is on a spectrum. Mm. Yeah. 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 Okay. Blix, if I understood you correctly, you were saying more maybe this idea that, you know, there isn't a true reality that that we kind of share, but it's sort of more like we come to some consensus from our beliefs and that creates the true reality or something like that. Yeah. So are, is it okay if we get a little weird? Yeah. Okay. Do it. All right. So maybe this is just like metaphysical people's taking uh, this idea of panpsychism and running with it. But uh there's this idea like everything, all of us, we're all just parts of the universe experiencing itself. And mm-hmm. that uh, that's why everything is conscious, but just in different degrees. Uh, and that, you know, physical tangent reality is just what we all agree it is. All of consciousness, consciousness having this one idea in concert. And then like, that's where we get into uh, if enough people are believing something or a narrative like that's part of this reality that we're experiencing, you know, and that's how some people who subscribe to this ideology might explain things like the supernatural things that might happen in one person or another's religion, you know, like a faith healing or a premonition or whatever. It's like, well, there's such and such many people that believe this religion and like they're experiencing these things. Mm. Anyway, so like there's this little microcosm here in this show where more and more people are buying into this golden bat idea. And like, as our episodes progressed, more and more people started participating in the, the golden bat story, right? They would be in distress, make a wish, divine strike or divine wind would happen. So I feel like that's what was being implied with everyone becoming the magician. Like everyone is mm. golden bat now. Mm. But we are only at the halfway point. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen this yet. It's, it gets real fun from here on out. Oh, yeah. awesome. Okay. 
because uh, it's been boring up until now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it also seems like this episode we're sort of seeing uh, this mental breakdown of the the younger detective, right? That, yeah, that's exactly like, what I was going to ask about. It's almost tempting to be like, oh, well, the whole thing was a mental breakdown, but the older cop also saw Shonen Bat, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Sort of complicates that, kind of that way of interpreting it. Well, we had at the beginning of the series, the younger detective, Maniwa, he says, you know, let's do this scientifically. Let's not work off of your old man detective intuition. Yeah. You know, we're living in the 21st century. Let's investigate this scientifically. Um, and in this episode, the older detective, Ikari, throws that those words back in his face. Besides, how the hell do you target someone on the verge of a nervous breakdown and then attack them just before they crack? It's impossible. No one could pull off a stunt like that, huh? Look, an investigation must be undertaken scientifically. And his response is, well, what is your old man detective like sense? So he's, I think because they don't have a story that fits his reality, he's losing his grip on his reality. Yeah. Mm. So my question is, how long has he been doing these radio broadcasts? Because one, it looks like he's filled up his entire bedroom with... Mm -hmm computers and radio equipment, just like Lane. And he's sleeping on his couch because he needs that room for the bedroom for that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm just wondering, does he have a relationship with the old man predating the series? Um, Or is it more of a psychic relationship because his brain is trying to put these things together? And how long has he been spreading this propaganda? Because when we get to hear him at the end, he's spreading the story of Shonen Bat. He's proliferating it to an unseen audience. Which isn't helping. Yeah, exactly. Has (laughs) he been doing this from the beginning of the case? Hmm. Like, there's even a part of me that's like, has he been doing it before the beginning of the case? Like, is there a possibility that Tsukiko somehow heard one of these transmissions and Mm -hmm. then she came up with the the sketch of Shonen Bat. So so when we first saw the radio stuff, I was thinking it was like kind of like a ham radio situation, like kind of, you know, something where you're connecting with random strangers and exchanging Mm -hmm. stuff. And that's sort of the impression I got with the sort of dialing in and hearing this chatter. But then sort of at the end, it's it was more like, oh, yeah, is he sort of like a radio conspiracy theorist guy who... Like Art Bell, like coast to coast. Yeah. Yeah. Something. Yeah. I don't know if you guys kind of what your impression was of what was going on there with the radio stuff. Well, they they got taken off the case. They're not detectives anymore. I figured that's what he is doing now. Mm -hmm. If it's why they lost the case and why they had to leave the force, it is his all consuming desire now to warn people, kind of holding up by himself. Most like by giving himself a reason to go on, he is preventing himself being attacked. Hmm. I feel like this series is very kind of interested in the people on margins of society and maybe kind of coming up with stories for how they ended up there, right? And so in some ways, this is like maybe this is the origin story of this conspiracy theorist guy Uh like this crazy uh thing happened to him and no one believed him and now he just like goes on the radio all day and rants and tries to get people to listen to him but you know like his story sounds too crazy and like he's just making stuff up 
And it's almost like our brains reflexively come up with stories. Like the old woman in the last episode, we were like, she's estranged from her family. And so she's living on the streets. Well, we we infer that she's estranged from her family, but we didn't get why she's living on the street. We just put those two data points together because they made sense in our heads, right? Hmm. Yeah, and, and I think the um, the kind of tuning the radio is a good metaphor for that or sort of trying to, hmm. you know, you're trying to find the signal through the noise. You're trying to find a cohesive thing where you're actually listening to something as opposed to just these little bits and pieces of sounds coming from all over, right? And that's that's also what he's trying to do as a detective is like you have all this information some of it is relevant some of it is extraneous and you're trying to come up with that story right and if you don't do that in the right way i think you you become a conspiracy theorist where you connect dots that aren't supposed to be connected and and come up with these weird stories that don't make any sense this is really interesting stuff uh has anyone here ever heard of a ghost box i i think i know what you're talking about where it like filters through different radio frequencies and mm-hmm. people that believe in ghosts think that ghosts can kind of work through that electronics to communicate with people in the room, right? Yeah. So like what you were saying, piecing things together to create a narrative, like that's what happens with people that use a ghost box. It's scanning random megahertz frequencies and picking up different words that are scrambled and then they interpret it to mean something. So, Alex, when you mentioned the static sound that was going throughout the episode, it's not mm-hmm. actually static. What it is, is like a high-speed random sampling of the mm-hmm. radio's frequency band. I recognize that sound because I had a ghost box once. <laughs> um, are, are you a true believer? I am not. Uh, I do have two ghost box in my modular synthesizer, though, because it's a great <laughs> alternative to just a white noise generator. I, I, I 100% agree. It's kind of funny. I, I So I did a, a podcast once about ghost hunters, and that's where I heard that oh, sound. Yeah. And then actually incorporated it into, um, we had like a little thing about the Zodiac Killer and trying to uncover his oh my God. codes. And so we had a thing commissioned that put that ghost box <laughs> sound into them. You should have yeah. asked me. I would have given it to you for free. <laughs> but that's that's oh. so fascinating. Um, but yeah, you're right. It wasn't just white noise. Like yeah, it's the, it's like the randomization. So, I mean, we don't have to spend too much time on that. I, I do have a question about this detective, though, and his odd practices. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like a huge investment in this gear. It is like ham radio stuff. It's a whole bunch of other stuff. So... Something's going on. He he has these visions and we're introduced to them as dreams initially. Like there's some strange like church imagery uh, and mixed with all these other things. And he wakes up in a cold sweat, but then it starts happening at the station. And is this like this Tulpa thing again? Because then at the very end, we have, that, that was a weird scene. Did we talk about this yet? <laughs> they see the kid mm. and then the kid's dead was murdered by Golden Bat. Yes. So does Golden Bat look like the kid or did the kid dress himself up to look like Golden Bat? Well, the question's more complex than that because in the first episode, the artist made up Golden Bat and drew a picture, but there's someone in the real world that already looks like this kid. And that was one of the questions, like, was this kid someone you've seen before? She's like, Hmm. presuming she's telling the truth or maybe she did see, wait, the kid that was saying that they were Golden Bat, like the Holy Warrior, mm-hmm. like Kazuka, 
isn't this one of the connections? Like he found the roller skates, the ones that the other kid discarded. <gasps> I didn't think that he found the roller skates, but he may have. Okay. I've actually been watching episode to episode to see if those roller skates ever showed up in a background trash bag. Didn't see them. Mm. <laughs> okay. So maybe that's what I thought the connection was that this other kid that was playing it being golden bat got these skates presumably in the trash, which is our recurring motif. Mm. I know it's thin Ben. No, <laughs> I didn't say that. Yeah. I was, I was trying to think, I, I still don't really know what's going on with that trash motif. I mean, maybe if you kind of think about it as metaphor for, you know, these people on the, the outskirts of society that mm-hmm. they're kind of like the people that have been thrown away from by society or something like that that is kind of interested in those well let's ask aubrey since she's seen it so many times what's with the trash motif oh i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i've been thinking on that too because it, it does seem to be incredibly prevalent the closest I can come to is uh, a lot of these people are shirking responsibilities in favor of comfort and a lot of things oh. that make us comfortable come in uh, packaging that mm-hmm. takes up quite a bit of space. So I was wondering mm-hmm. if it was maybe, um, you know, the commodification of everyday life and keeping you complacent. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's a good uh, statement on it, though. Uh, and there's also a parallel between the ghost box thing, right? It's trash signal and you're filtering through it to find the voice or the information, just like he takes these skates and he puts them in a pile of trash bags. So there is evidence or a narrative within that pile of trash, but it takes a human to sort through it and put it together. Hmm. Wow. There's also something about this, the static signal that I hadn't thought about the modernity of this story because yes, it I feel like it's kind of timeless now, but obviously if we told it to someone in the 1930s, they wouldn't recognize it because there's certain level of technology that doesn't make sense yet, right? So yes, it seems like it's uh, timeless now, but there's also this idea of, anybody play Metal Gear Solid 2? I need scissors, 61. Uh, yeah. Forever ago. So Hideo Kojima, in that, he supposes that the way that governments and other, you know, uh, forms of authority will control information in the future will not be to withhold it from the public. It will be to have so much information that you can't find it anymore. Mm. There'll be so much static or ghost noise that it will be virtually impossible for people to pick out what's true and what's not. You know, in recent years, we've had a lot of CIA divulging, FBI divulging, all of these old things, uh, uh, secret documents that are now coming to light in the public eye. And yes, we now have access to them as the public, as journalists, as interested consumers. But if you're not looking for it, you will never find it because there is so many YouTube videos to watch. There is so much to listen to. There are so many things to do that it's just overwhelming to look at that you know raw spigot of yeah. information we I, I several years ago i used to joke that metal gear solid 2 predicted twitter just because <laughs> of how much 100%. information slash misinformation you were being soaked in at all times just non-stop you just don't know anymore there is a really good i, I think it's a reply all about it's like this woman in i think it was in mexico who just every once in a while, she would go viral and her whole life would like get crazy again. 
And then it like turned out that one of the political parties there, whenever they had like a scandal, they would just have like <sighs> a room full of people that would just try to make some old story start trending again to oh. kind of cover it up. And it felt like a pretty good reported out version where you can kind of like prove that some stuff like that is is happening now. Reminds me of the governor of Texas, right? Greg Abbott? Oh, what about him? Yeah, uh, got caught in some scandal. And then the same day uh, that he was caught, went on to say all these provocative things about the trans community. And then mm. that's what the story was. Uh, yeah, we've had um, with um, who makes M&Ms? Is it the Mars Corporation? Mm -hmm. So they've been having all of these stupid culture war, their M&M mascot things. Well, they're also under increased investigation and litigation for the use of slave labor from companies that they buy their cocoa from. Mm. Every time a human rights violation shows up for them, well, we also magically get this front page story about their stupid mascots. Mm. That's like a magician's trick, redirection, smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. You think that could backfire and then that turns into a line in the in the article about the culture war stuff, but I've only heard yeah. the culture war stuff, so I don't know. <laughs> right. This is working. Yeah, and we have this interesting we have this mascot, Maromi, right? And I wonder if Maromi will be, I don't know, somehow thrust back into the spotlight. Like, I really want an episode coming up, and hopefully there is one, where we learn more about Maromi. Because it seems to be ubiquitous in the culture, but like we don't know why the culture likes Maromi hmm. so much. Is there a show he's part of? Is it just like the design itself caught on fire? I, I'm so fascinated. Those questions will be answered. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, yes. Something I was just thinking too is um, we have those two shots of the crane game, right? Mm -hmm. And there's kind of like this modern day one, this one in the past. And I think in the past one, it's like a bunch of different plushies and dolls and stuff, right? And then the modern one is just all Maromi. <laughs> yeah, it's Maromi. actually three yep. claw games and the only thing in them is Maromi. Wow. Yeah, interesting image. Maromi is the minions of this show. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. Don't bring that evil into our podcast. I'm sorry I even said that. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Just going back to that again, um, did that have some something that was referential to our story? Like, the girl was staying up at night, eavesdropping on her parents, talking about whether or not to buy her this stuffed animal because she's only going to be young for a kid for so much longer. Oh, I think she's listening to them talk about potentially buying the house because at that oh. point in the story, they're living in a, it looks like a two room apartment. Yeah. And the mom is saying like, well, we should do it because she's going to be in high school and she needs her own room so she can study. Yeah, I knew they were also debating about the house, but like that scene was preceded by like the kid begging for some toy, like I guess one of the stuffed animals because she didn't couldn't get it through the machine mm. and like they didn't want to buy it for her. Yeah. Well, she just wanted to try the claw machine again. No, it's just a Satoshi cone. Everything means something. Everything does mean something. Everything means something, but only because we are observing it, because we make it mean something, right? Like Satoshi Kone is painfully aware that human beings are pattern-seeking apes. And he uses that, that knowledge against his audience. Well, not like against you, you know, he's not trying to hurt us, but he made me at least think that the old woman was Tycho's grandmother. Mm -hmm. But by the end of the episode, she was not that anymore. So there's this liminal space in the episode 
where she is Tycho's grandmother. But that that reality gets smashed at the end when we're we're given new information. We also had an entire episode where we were led to believe that Hirakawa's family might not be real. Yeah. Right. Isn't it great? <laughs> oh, um, w- one thing I, I did want to point out, especially about like seeking patterns, mm-hmm. we knew that Ushi wasn't an actual victim of Lil Slugger all the way back in episode three, because we find out that he and Hir- Hirakawa were the only two victims of this copycat. Oh, right. Yeah. So Masami Hirakawa is the police officer yeah. who was robbing people. And so you're saying that Ushi, who is the, the chubby kid. Yeah. But he's a victim of the copycat, but not the supernatural shonen bat. Right. But then Yuichi was. Hmm. So we actually get this shot um, in the hospital in like episode three, where the old man is drawing on the floor. And mm-hmm. in order, he has drawn a bird, a frog, a fish, and a butterfly, mm-hmm. which corresponds to sagi, which yeah. means heron. Kawazu is frog. Mm. Uh, tai is red snapper. And Chocho is butterfly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Chono. So we get those four victims. There's no cow. Uchi is the cow. Mm-hmm. But because that is not drawn into that little you know, thing he's putting on the floor, you kind of know there's something wrong with that attack. Mm. Wow. I feel like then uh, the copycat kid has these like very rabbit teeth. Like <laughs> I feel like he also kind of fits into these, this animal person oh. theme going on. Pretty much all of them do. Yeah. A couple of them are a stretch, but yeah, most of them do. Like Hiru in Hirukawa means leech. Hmm. Oh. And he's the guy extorting money from the mob. Um, also at the ends of the episodes where the old man just talks nonsense, um, the guy that kept picking him up in the car with the silver hair kept being referred to as the fox. Hmm. Everybody has an animal analog. We saw when Maniwa was thinking about the victims, they would show up and there would be a panel with a painting behind them. And each mm-hmm. one of them had the animal that corresponds to their name. Oh, okay. I was trying to figure that out earlier. Like what was with the animal motif? Because like, they're not the Zodiac, but when they did the montage of the, um, I can't remember what that style of painting is called. Ukiyo-e. Is it like a, some kind of wood carving thing? It's just gorgeous. Yeah, but there was, those images are tied to stories, which is like oh. what all this is about. It's about story, I guess. Um, so these are like animals that are tied to some kind of like folk tales or something like that. Mm. Symbolism. It's all our damn brains can work with. Well, I mean, literally, we're watching an anime when these are characters, but like figuratively, well, yeah. they're characters. We're all characters. Well, we're all characters, I mean, Ben, in the cosmic story. Well, yeah. And I mean, we're all actors playing fictional podcasters for this series. Me, most of all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having trouble holding on to reality as it is. So let's just, what else are we talking about? Oh, that's it. Okay. Well, this is really fascinating. Uh, we we end our episode with this huge revelation, right? That Kazuka, who was our suspect, he's found dead in his cell. Uh, the authority, you know, the the police and the government, they whitewash it. They say it was a suicide and people are being held accountable, even though it's not actually their fault that he died in his cell. Mm. The the public wants, you know, a scapegoat or something. A story. Yeah, the story. So the authorities, they rely on the most believable story. But someone who is 
untethered by authority, untethered by the official narrative, that's someone who can look into what's actually happening. So Maniwa, the younger detective, he has now dedicated his life apparently to either finding the actual little slugger or at least warning uh, uh, the public that he still exists, that he's at large. His dreams of the old man in the church with his own broadcasting equipment. Right. His dream version of seeing the man make these calculations on the sidewalk. Oh, yeah. wow. And then he takes it a step further and he himself, instead of using the numbers on the sidewalk, is now broadcasting on like this ham radio setup. Hmm. He is also trying to warn people. Hmm. And then there's this fascinating, he has a dream that he's the next victim of Yeah, that's right. Shonen Bat, which, you know, it's a great sequence. He gets hit. That's the hit that wakes him up out of his dream. And so in physical reality, he didn't get hit by Shonen Bat. But in his dream, he did get hit. And he gets up from the couch and walks into the other room and starts broadcasting. So like, again, and Satoshi Kon in all of his work, we find this you know, skewing of the lines between dreams and the physical world. And he was talking about when he has this dream, he's frantically talking to himself about who's being emotionally cornered. And he realizes in that moment, oh, I'm emotionally cornered. Yeah, he works himself into it. Yes, exactly. So Shonen Bat is having a massive effect on this society and not just his physical presence. The idea of Shonen Bat even if it's just a dream. All right. Something's like condensing. This is a, another stretch. Okay. This young detective, his distress is he wants to solve this case, but if there's really something metaphysical happening, he's not going to be able to solve the case. Even if he solves the case, he can't solve the case. He can't go to his superiors with like, oh, there's this thing called a tulpa, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so he needs like the divine wind to knock him mm -hmm. out of that. And that's what happens. He gets knocked out of that role and he becomes this like Art Bell type person who can, those people can succeed just by getting on the radio and saying whatever they want. Well, like, even in the like Holy Warrior episode, he was the bard spreading yes. the story. Mm -hmm. And he was super into that story. He jumped mm -hmm. in with both feet. Yeah. You wonder if maybe he was more susceptible to this happening to him or if that caused it. I think the pattern still plays out like Shonen Bat saved him from his distress. So, I mean, he he said the thing about early on about addressing it scientifically, but then we hear this rumor or something from another cop who's talking about like, oh, the old cop, he said the guy went through the wall. Man, he's been hanging out with Maniwa too long or something oh. like that. So maybe, maybe Maniwa does have this reputation or he's always been a little bit kooky or, or something like that. Hmm. So maybe they're an odd couple together. Like maybe no one else wants to work with Maniwa and Ikari's like, well, I'm towards the end of my career. I, I can work with him, whatever. Is he the spooky motor? Hmm. But I mean, it, Blix, I think you're right that, uh, you know, when he's like, okay, so Shonen Bat's in two places at once. Like if he's correct about that, right, then it's not this conventional criminal that you'll be able to arrest or something like that. But I mean, if that's true, that's like, you know, you have like evidence of supernatural forces in the world and like that would be 
the craziest thing ever, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. you'd still be very motivated to try to, if you really believed that, to try to somehow prove that. And um, But if he has a was... reputation already, <laughs> like, it, it wouldn't matter if he had a smoking gun. Well, yeah, Art Bell could have a smoking gun. The majority of the population still doesn't believe him, right? But don't you want to know how Art Bell came to be a true believer? Like, I certainly do. And maybe this is the story of how that happens. Maniwa, how he became a true believer. Mm. Uh, we're coming up on our time. Does anybody have any big thoughts they need to get off their chest before we finish this episode? I pity whoever has is your guest for episode eight. Okay. By far, to me, the most confusing episode. You you do get an answer, an answer to a few questions in it, but it is largely divorced from the rest of the series. And also like trigger warning, trigger warning, trigger warning for that one. Yeah, that's good, actually. Can you say, like, what kind of a trigger warning? Is it, like, sexual assault or... Suicide. Okay. Okay. Well, we have a content warning in the can. We do. Yeah. Um, I I was just going to ask Aubrey, um, Aubrey, do you have any recommendations if people like Paranoia Agent, you know, a series or movie or anything that you think people would also enjoy? Um, I haven't seen it in many, many years, but I am going to recommend Boogie Pop Phantom. Oh, um, it's, what was that Boogie Pop Phantom? Yes, Boogie Pop is one word, I believe. Um, but it is some weird supernatural ghosts type. It's I can't explain it. There's a movie. There's like a live action movie. It was fairly popular for a very small amount of time. But I can't describe it. A lot of the imagery I saw in Parasite seems to hmm. kind of mimic what was in Boogie Pop. So if you like that, that might be something to look for. Oh, cool. I actually own that, but I didn't, haven't gotten around to watching it yet. I used to have the soundtrack. That's actually how I accidentally ended up getting the anime. Wait, the, the Boom Boom Satellites thing? Yeah. Awesome. Um, and then, uh, bu- 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 what was our other question? Con- like, if there's anything you would like to promote or plug. Oh, yeah. Are you on the internet? Do you do anything? Is there anybody else you'd like to promote? Uh, you can go to youtube.com slash bonesolvent. Um, that is where I have been doing music for many, many years. All I ever did was 8-bit covers of songs, but I am <gasps> starting to, there's actually a bunch of the pillows in 8-bit if you'd like to go check them out, but I'm starting to move into more original mm-hmm. instrumental works. I can't sing. Love it. Very cool. All right. So, okay. And Blixie, you said, go ahead. Yeah, so Art Bell <laughs> holds the record for like being on the air, live on the air for the longest, like he put on a diaper for all this crap. But um, uh, there's a famous episode where someone calls in, uh, presumably someone from Area 51 saying like, the aliens, they're not really what you think. It's this interdimensional thing. And they're like super distressed because someone's going to triangulate on their signal. Uh, It's one of the most famous episodes. Well, it turns out that was like a young Brian Michael Bendis uh, comic book writer. (laughs) What the later came out was like yeah this was me and my buddy <laughs> and then bendis came was a guest on uh fade to black another like radio sort of conspiracy show like coast to coast with art bell from uh, jimmy church mm-hmm. and they talked about it that's amazing what a fun chapter in comic book slash paranormal history yeah what's a big title from my brian michael bendis oh god um well powers was his original story uh, okay. But a major writer at uh, Marvel Comics 
got Daredevil to the elevated to the level that character's at now, and then did a mm. very, very popular run on Avengers called Avengers Disassembled, and then Civil War and Secret Invasion. Oh, wow. Uh, so, okay, yeah. he's huge. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> All right, we're all ready? Mm-hmm. Pen. Pen. Pals. Kamikaze. Someone say Cosby. 